Amen. Well, church, it is so good to be here, and that's definitely an understatement. <clears throat> I know with uh, the snow, and uh, well, again, a lot of snow the last few weeks, and the ice covering the roads this past week, uh, a lot of things were preventing us from actually meeting for corporate worship. And so from the bottom of my heart, it truly is wonderful to actually be able to meet, to actually be able to worship God together as the family of God here. Um, and I was thinking through this, but uh, um, I, I've myself have been a person that usually is very committed to a cause, committed to whatever is put in front of me. And so for me, it was such a hard decision just to give this caveat from, you know, since the very, since we actually had to cancel this past Sunday. Um, being a committed person, it's very tough for me to actually make the decision to cancel a service. I know last week it was tough uh, because of just the iffy nature of canceling or not canceling. And so I just want to thank you all, again, on a, on a personal note, before we even dive into this morning's message, for being so flexible and understanding. Uh, I know this has been a season of change and transition for so many of us, even as I've begun to serve in your midst. And so given uh, just the weather and all these things that have contributed to a strange new season for our church's life, I wanna thank you for being yourselves committed, uh, for being committed to the very cause of Christ here in, in Culpeper at Christ Cove. Um, I was joking with Greg earlier, <laughs> I got his permission to share this, but uh, he sent me a picture, uh, it was like a Photoshop image of me with uh, uh, some, I think it was like the winter is coming, you know, meme or whatever, and it was like my face just over that picture, and apparently I brought the snow with me from Lynchburg, so I'm sorry as I moved up here, you know, and I'm still moving up here, um, slowly moving my belongings up here, I apparently brought all the snow with me, <laughs> so my apologies at that, but uh, I just truly want to say, though, that it is such a blessing to, again, be able to meet, and I really can't reiterate that enough. Uh, because the very fact is, as I've already been alluding to it this very morning already, we're meeting as a church under the very banner of Christ. We're meeting given the fact that we are forgiven by Christ. And that's going to be our theme this morning, forgiveness. The very fact that we are a forgiven people, a people who's been forgiven so much. And truly the highest joy of any pastor and those of you who've served in the ministry know this all too well, but the highest joy is being able to say with boldness and clarity from the word of God to Christ's people, your sins are forgiven you. Not for anything you've done, not for anything you've brought to the table, but simply because of Christ, the very fact that Christ died for your sins. And so church, as we begin this um, sermon this very morning, I just want to reiterate that fact, that you are a forgiven people. If you are in Christ, Christ has forgiven you. And when you think about it, one of the major themes of our worship, from the very beginning, the call to worship to the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, the catechisms, everything about it has to do with forgiveness. Underscoring the entirety of our worship, even up until this point, everything has led up to this place of recognizing we are a forgiven people. But it leaves us with this question Again, the tension that we serve a holy and majestic God. This question of how else, aside from the forgiveness of sin, could we ever approach a holy God? How else could we sing with joyfulness on our lips unless we know deep down that we are forgiven? How else could we come before his very throne of grace with boldness, 
unless we are resting in the fact that our sins are forgiven us. Now, I know this idea of being forgiven is so simple. It's something that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it pretty much all your life. Yeah, it's one of these truths that I cannot help but see here in our text from 1 John chapter 3. And it's something that we recognize as being, again, elementary to the Christian faith, yet so fundamental. And so John, the apostle, writes this to us, to believers, no matter what their stage of maturity in the faith might be, because he's trying to strip things down and recognize we must come before God with a mindset that we are indeed forgiven. See, I think it's easy for us as believers, especially those of us who've been believers for any great length of time, to think of God forgiving us as just a, a passing doctrinal statement. You know, Christ died for our sins, that's great. But this morning, I want us to really rest and revel in the fact that our sins are forgiven. I want us to think through and reflect upon the deep implications of our standing before God, our standing before him. Never mind our own standing, but also to consider the great expense to which Christ went to save us from our sins, to redeem us. And so this morning, we're going to find ourselves in 1 John chapter 3. And here in the very middle of this letter to the church, wrestling with our own identity before God himself, John moves us now from the two first chapters that were very much introductory to 1 John, now into three major points of application, specifically in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Go figure. And he tends to actually elaborate, if you recall from last Sunday's message from 1 John 2, he tends to elaborate here in these following chapters from the truth that was present there in 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14. Now, if you recall, and, and I definitely invite you to turn there already if you haven't yet, but 1 John 2, 2 through 14, he talks about three different groups of people. Little children, fathers and mothers, young men and women. And to each of those uh, addressees or recipients, he associates something about the faith to them. For the little children, it was that their sins are forgiven them. For the fathers and mothers, those who were experienced in the faith and even more experienced in age, uh, he writes to them saying, you have known the father, you've known him who is from the beginning. And to those who are uh, the young men and young women in the church, he writes them essentially saying, you know the battle with sin and you know that you are an overcomer only by the very blood of Christ. Well, it's interesting because <clears throat> when you look at it through that lens of those three groups of people, we actually see John now elaborate upon those same three groups in chapters three, four, and five. Three is really gonna focus especially on the fact that we are, we are as a church a forgiven people. Just like little children, John is inviting us in this chapter to focus on the fact that our sins are forgiven us. But one thing I wanna really emphasize before we actually read the text this morning from 1 John 3 is that the gospel itself, and I'm definitely stealing this quote from one of my favorite preachers and one of my professors at Westminster, but the gospel itself doesn't offer us just amnesty. It doesn't offer us just a letting go of our sin. The gospel offers us purity, purity, holiness before a holy God. And what a sobering thing to realize. Again, the gospel offers us not just amnesty, 
but purity. And so with that in mind, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter this very morning and then dive in as such. But 1 John chapter 3, and again, keep in mind that beautiful truth that the gospel offers us, purity. But let's read this together. This is God's word given to us in love, forever faithful and true. The word of God says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. <clears throat> For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, then, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, <clears throat> that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments <clears throat> and do what pleases him. And this is, <clears throat> this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Now, let's come before him in prayer. 
God, we thank you again that you are holy and majestic, that you are enthroned upon the praises of your people. And that in this time, as we've opened your word and we've sought to hear from it by your very spirit, we ask that the very truth of your word would be impressed upon our hearts and that it would, as you promise it will, uh, accomplish everything for which it is set out to do. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is the one who uses the preached word to draw our affections to Christ again. We thank you, Father, that it never returns null or void. But Lord, we thank you that um, in this time we have this wonderful opportunity and this privilege of coming before you, of hearing your word, this letter that has been given to us, um, to the church for all ages and throughout all the ages. <clears throat> God, we ask that as we now attend to the preaching of your word, uh, may you, by your very Holy Spirit, use this time to uh, just implant this word concerning Christ upon our hearts. God, would you use this vessel broken that I am uh, to accomplish your purpose? And God, will you speak through me as your messenger um, and use this time to strengthen your church, to nourish her, to love her, and to show your affection for her. And so we pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, as we uh, more deeply begin to explore this, this passage of 1 John 3, uh, I want us to walk through two key concepts here in 1 John, this chapter. Um, the first one we're going to see in verses 1 through 10, and the second through verses 11 and following. Uh, the first part especially uh, is this idea that we see here in the text of a pure standing before God, a pure standing before him. And secondly, we're going to see this idea of a pure love for one, for one another. So a pure standing before the Father and a pure love for one another. Now, um, as somebody who uh, is a millennial, almost begrudgingly so, someone who was born in the 80s, even I myself have seen quite a few cultural shifts that have taken place over the years. Uh, even in the last 30 some odd years, I've seen so many things happen in our society as we've begun to drift away from uh, certain truths that even 15, 20 years ago, our society, even the secular world around us, once held to. And it can be disparaging and discouraging in many times when we begin to look at these things. And for anybody who's kept an eye on the news over the last few months, we've seen discord and disunity all kinds of things that have caused us to be a little disheveled in our own souls. At least I know I have. <laughs> and yet, uh, as I've already been mentioning the last few Sundays, and it's very relevant to this text here in 1 John, um, we've seen our culture go from a sense of uh, modernism to postmodernism. And furthermore, we've seen our culture shift away from even what would be maybe called institutionalism into what appears in some ways to be like anarchy at times. Everyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And the thing with these things, this, this breaking down of institutionalism that we find ourselves facing, is that as I mentioned even before, a couple of Sundays ago, it's affected in many ways the three major institutions the Lord God himself has put in place over us. Three institutions, namely the family unit, government itself, but also even the church, the 
very church of Christ. All three of these institutions have been hit hard by these cultural shifts that have been happening. And it's interesting because it's not just a shift in one direction. And this uh, hopefully causes all of us to think about these things, but I'm really seeing a division happening, if anything, in our society. A division that isn't just erring toward one thing, but rather two major uh, um, malpractices, if you will, social malpractices. The first one is this idea of individualism. For instance, like in our Western world, we come from a place of individualism, a place that props up the individual, uh, and in many ways, rightfully so. Uh, a good hard work ethic is very much admonished in our society. You know, making your own name for yourself. It's something that we value in our American culture. But of course, there is an error with that kind of way of thinking when taken to the extreme that lends itself to individualism as an ideology. And that can lead to this idea of anarchism. Everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes. But we're also not just seeing individualism at its worst right now, a moment of crisis in our nation's history. We are also seeing in many ways pluralism taking its effect in other ways. This pluralistic notion where uh, groupthink develops and people band together around common ideas and socially accept norms, new norms even at that, and begin to ostracize and demonize those on the outside who might dissent or hold to traditional tried and true views. And so we have these weird divisions taking place in our society all across the spectrum between two extremes of individualism, again, capital I as an ideology, individualism, and then capital P, pluralism, taking place and dividing us. And again, this is taking place, unfortunately and sadly, and I hear of it almost every day, that's why I bring it up, even within the church. And so John addresses these very things in this very chapter and how we ought to be bound together as the family of God. But I bring up these things as well because if we're being honest, these aren't things that just happen in our society that we're isolated from. These are things that we, I myself, have been guilty of. Even in the past week, I've found myself tending toward one ideology or the other. And so all of us even, I imagine, have faced these things. As I've talked with friends in confidence about these ways of thinking, all of us have veered and erred in a spirit of division in our culture as we've tried to engage with certain things that are dividing our culture. And people have become very polarized. Um, case in point, and I realize this is a touchy subject right here, but case in point, what comes to mind when you hear the following words? that you might hear in the news fairly often. Words like liberal or conservative. Words like social justice or equity. Racial justice, liberty. And the best of them all, PC or Mac. I'm just teasing about the last one. <laughs> Joking aside, uh, these are all things that polarize us, that distance us from one another. Things that uh, you know, though they are words, they immediately spark within us uh, a feeling of resonance, something that resonates with us, or a feeling of repulsiveness, feeling put off by something. These words are, are words, honestly, that you might gravitate to or distance yourself from immediately upon hearing them. 
And uh, if you happen to resonate with that word Mac earlier instead of PC, I will definitely uh, get along with you really well, being a Mac guy myself. <laughs> but uh, joking aside, my, my point is this. We live not in merely an age of identity politics, an age where we ourselves are faced with these things head on nearly daily. But we ourselves in our culture, even in the church, are dealing at the very present with an identity crisis. And just as God's word addresses all things pertaining to his righteousness, to godliness, so it speaks to our identity. Our identity as believers is central to our faith, in other words. When you think about it this way, the name Christian, the name Christian, and no, not our worship leader Christian, but our, the name Christian itself literally means one who is in Christ. One who is in Christ. It has everything to do with our identity. And while our disposition, our behaviors, and even how we treat one another are also integrally important in our worldview and how we look at the Christian faith as it's put into practice, our identity itself is not rooted in those very things. Our identity itself is rooted ultimately in our standing before God the Father. This is why John, in 1 John 3, 1, starts off this passage by saying this very thing, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Church, as the very bride of Christ, you are also children of God, children of the Father. That is a glorious truth to settle into. Now, as I was going through the, the Greek and dissecting all of this and um, Greeking out a little bit, so to speak, as I was translating all this stuff earlier a few days ago. Still love doing that week in and out. Um, I couldn't help but notice a few words that were very curious in this very simple statement that I just read from 1 John 3, verse 1. The very first word in the Greek is actually this command. Uh, it's the word edete, which literally means you all, plural, like all of you, behold this truth. Take it to heart. Slow down. Let it really saturate you. Behold this truth. And what's beautiful is that here in this very statement, what does he ask us to behold? He asks us to behold that we ourselves have been called children of God. And if God has called us children, we who are in Christ, we are therefore children. What he has called us, the identity he has given to us, is our identity, never to be shaken or put asunder. Now, beyond all the labels that our modern society tries to place upon each one of us, again, even those labels earlier that I mentioned, certain leanings and political worldviews and such, we as Christians are not primarily identified with the color of our skin, our political persuasions, or our own socioeconomic statuses. Rather, and please hear this, we are in Christ. First and foremost, we have been called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light, called from death into life. God, our father, calls us his children. And as such, so we are. If God calls us this, we are this. Now, what a curious phrase that is, though, that we would be called God's children. I mean, what does that mean? 
Well, as John points out later in verse 2, he says this, well, if we are God's children now, in this present world order that is passing away, and soon at the second coming of Christ will pass away, what more then shall we be when the Lord makes all things new? When the fullness of his making all things new has arrived and we will know firsthand the light of his glory, never to sin or even be ever persuaded by the snares of sin ever again. In the words of 1 John 3 verse 2, he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be in the future has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, though we are already God's children, we are, we are yet still becoming who we are. We are already children, but we will yet be fully realized even by the world as God's children. It's what theologians often will call this idea of the already not yet complex. Already not yet. And to illustrate this idea, um, as many of you probably know, I've actually been in the process of moving the last few weeks. It's been a slow process of moving from Lynchburg up here to Culpeper. Uh, closing on a house takes a long, long time, as many of you well know. And uh, this one's been taking about almost 45 days at this point. Uh, and things are going really smoothly. It's as good as done. Everything is signed and sealed and almost to be delivered. Uh, but at this point, I'm just simply awaiting the closing date of March 12th. And that date is just seared in my mind. You know, it's almost there, but it's not yet there. You know, it's, when you look at the, the deed that I was signing yesterday and, and even the, the, everything about it, all the different, you know, formal documents that I needed to go ahead and sign, all those things have been put in order, put in motion for that date to actually move finally, to finally relocate from Lynchburg to Culpeper, even though I've already been serving here, of course. But until that day approaches, it's that weird tension of already serving, already living here as much as I can, and yet not fully being a citizen here in Culpeper. Well, in the same way, that's how the Christian faith is here in this present time. See, again, we live in this already not yet uh, conundrum, where Christ, for instance, is already on his throne, ruling and reigning over us in love, and yet his kingdom of grace is still spreading from shore to shore. We still see the advancement of it as the gospel goes out, even here, but also to distant lands. But yet it's not fully had its effect on the entire world. We are already adopted into God's family, for instance, co-heirs with Christ here and now, already a kingdom of priests unto God, and yet we are not realized as such by the eyes of the watching world. We already live as people who are free from the bondage of sin, and yet we still await the day in which we will no longer be given to sin of any kind. As believers, continuing on, we are already in a right relationship before God our Father through Christ, and yet we long for that future perfection of our glorified state when the frailness of our bodies will be put away with. How we long for that day. And so though we ourselves still wrestle with sin and we feel the aches within our souls due to sin in this world, though we are not above the temptations of indwelling sin within us, nor even the temptations from the world or the enemy himself, we must yet, as John says, hope, hope 
in God who is himself pure. Now, earlier this week, uh, Bob was sharing me, sharing with me, rather, uh, this powerful message from R.C. Sproul. And I want to thank you, just even publicly, for sharing that with me. Um, it was just wonderful. It was on the glory of God. The glory of God. And Sproul, I know many of you, of course, are fans of Sproul, and rightfully so. He was talking about the glory of God to a, a whole uh, meeting, a whole conference of people and pastors from all around the nation. And he couldn't help but just... Um, essentially caused them all to be completely silenced as he was talking about the majesty and the holiness of our God. Sproul was talking about how um, essentially when we come to God in worship, even on Sunday mornings, we are coming to him in this deep complexity of again knowing our sins are forgiven us, but also recognizing how far above us he is. His purity his holiness, his matchless glory. In other words, our God is not to be taken lightly. His name is never to be taken flippantly by our lips, for he is truly a consuming fire, as the writer of Hebrews points out. And so to think that we, those whose hearts are so inclined toward iniquity, here in this time, even as children of God, are so prone to the deception of the devil and of the pleasures of this world, to think that we will be called children of God and called to approach his very throne of grace is nothing short of stunning, my friends. And yet in the sheer, the light of the sheer majesty of God, we can rightfully have confidence in that same moment. For we also know from the book of Hebrews that as the writer says, the very blood of Jesus Christ, he who is our very object of worship, the son of God, his blood speaks a better word over us. And so when we stand before God, we do not stand on our own merit, but rather upon Christ. We do not stand upon the basis of our own works, but rather upon the saving grace that was accomplished by Jesus Christ and bestowed upon us by his very spirit. See, essentially, all of us in this entire world, every single one of us, are not outside of this. But every single person is and either one camp or the other, one of two different camps. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. You are either um, there standing before a holy God, essentially pleading your own case before him, standing on the basis of your own works, or you are in Christ saying, I cannot, I, I fail at even approaching you. I need Jesus. He alone speaks over me. We're either in Christ or we're not. And this is exactly what Romans 5 teaches. We either are in a relationship with God, which is known by theologians as the covenant of works. In other words, a covenant, a promise of life given upon the basis of our obedience to a holy God. Or we stand in relation to him based upon the covenant of grace. In relation to God, based upon the very work of Christ offered to us freely in the gospel. This is why John in 1 John 3, 4 through 10, does the same thing here. He typecasts two different groups of people, those who practice sin and those who practice righteousness. So in other words, even as John is saying here in 1 John 3, we are either dead in our sin or we are born again in God. And of course, we know this phrase even from 
the gospel that's pronounced in John 3.16 that nearly everybody seems to know, <laughs> that we must be born again, and that life only comes from Christ himself. Well, this leads us to uh, our second point this very morning uh, regarding verses 11 through 24. You know, moving from this pure standing before God that's only to be had through Christ to a pure love for one another. So how then should we live brings us to that question. Now, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, the whole how then should we live is answered by a simple answer. It's come to Christ. There is no other way. And so if you are not yet a believer in Christ, you are first and foremost by this very passage called to come to Christ and a deep heartfelt contrition or brokenness over your sins. To recognize the rebellious spirit against God that you and I have on our own, in, in our own nature. And you are called to receive his life that is offered to you so freely in the gospel of grace. The good news that Jesus himself, out of sheer kindness and mercy, chose from eternity past to come in the fullness of time to destroy the works of the devil as 1 John 3 points out. He came to destroy those works. That is also our undoing and our own unraveling within us, our sinful rebellion against a holy God, our breaking of God's good and holy law. And in so taking on human flesh, Jesus didn't just leave us there, but he took upon himself the duty and the obligations of the law and met them fully in himself. As the scriptures say, fulfilling all righteousness and so applying it to every person who believes in him for life eternal and so as god has loved us for those of us who are believers who who already know that and who've experienced this great salvation we realize that as god has loved us not for anything worthy in our own selves so we are then called to a very similar action as 1 John 3.11 points out. It's this action of loving one another in such a way that exemplifies the very love of Christ for other people. But especially in this chapter within the household of God, other believers around us. And so I have a few questions for us. Uh, is love itself merely a matter of the head or the heart? Furthermore, is love merely a friendly affection or a burning for a moment? Or is it more than that? Is it a loyalty sworn? Furthermore, is love merely an oath and an attendance thereunto? Or is it actually this active undertaking of that committed devotion to the other, whatsoever may come in the meantime or will come? See, the answer to these questions is for us to look to the author of love himself, our God who made us. For instance, how did the Father love us? Well, the scripture tells us that he gave us his only son. And how did Jesus love us himself? Well, he gave himself for us. And he even sent his spirit to us, whom he's poured out over us. See, love, in many ways, is defined by the fruit of what comes out of this this action of devoted loyalty, steadfast loyalty toward the other. Um, and it's this idea of, uh, of, of a trademark, of an insignia. See, well, we actually know each other by our love and we know other people by how they love us. In the same way, um, when you look at a product, for instance, to use an illustration, 
you might not know the actual quality of the product itself unless you see the actual trademark or insignia upon it. You might not know the actual quality of it until you have seen the logo that is placed upon it. Uh, for instance, if you have a favorite book publisher, um, if you're a book nerd like myself, you probably have just walls lined up with books upon books upon books, but you will probably recognize their insignia, their trademark, right there on the spine of the book. Even before you look at the actual title, you probably see the little picture and you know, okay, this is a quality book because it's published by so-and-so. You know that it's gonna be quality material and even quality contents because it's been vetted. So that insignia speaks volumes about the actual book. Well, in the same way, if you're into technology like me as well, uh, you tend to adopt various brand loyalties over time. And being a Mac guy, like I mentioned earlier, all things Apple, um, I've come to really trust certain companies like Nomad and 12 South for my um, you know, accessories and things that I can use to actually bring more value to my computer. Uh, I've learned how to actually trust certain companies because of the reputation that they carry, the trademark of their quality. Well, in the same way, friends, we are known by our love. So here again, the words of 1 John 3, 14 through 16, which speak to this very thing, this idea of knowing each other by our love. The author says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Here's Christ's love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Speaking of brothers here, John then alludes to the historic narrative of, of Cain and Abel. You know, two brothers, the very firstborn sons of Adam and Eve. Both who offered agrarian sacrifices unto God. One of vegetation, one of the livestock of the field. And yet only one was actually pleasing to God, the actual sacrifice and offering of Abel. And as such, Cain became jealous over his brother and murdered his brother in cold blood. And John points this out because in the same way, we as believers, the, the righteous seed of God, so to speak, that it alludes to here, as God's children, are hated by the world, just truthfully said. We end up being hated by the world who is so far removed from God. And so as we are God's children, the spiritual offspring of God by faith, we have known the love of the Father and seek to operate from and out of this grace-filled love that he has demonstrated to us. Christ who, la who laid down his life for us. And as such, so we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. As those who have been chosen in Christ, who have known his love, we cannot help but open our hearts to one another. For if we have been given so much by our Father's hand, how can we not give freely and generously to one another? How can we say that God's love abides in us, as John says as well, if we close our hearts to the spiritual and tangible needs of the people around us in the family of God? As 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but rather in deed and in truth. And so, friends, we ourselves are trademarked by this kind of love, branded by our love as we exhibit that before our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, the love of God, which abides in us, 
it cannot help but manifest itself in our actions through both deed and truth. True Christian love compels us to join ourselves to the church as members of one another visibly. True Christian love expresses itself through a steadfast loyalty to our brothers and sisters, espousing wisdom and gentleness in how we treat one another. And above all, true Christian love manifests itself in our commitment to the way, the truth, and the life himself, Jesus Christ, and to the infallible message concerning him, the Holy Scripture. This is why John so boldly says in verses 19 through 24 that we can be reassured in our standing before God by our love. For love is more than a feeling. It's even more than a disposition. It is a keeping and a guarding of God's command to us. It is a heartfelt and willful obedience to him and his ways. As it says in 1 John, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. So friends, as we conclude, do you know the love of God? And not just intellectually, but have you known it? And are you resting in it right now? As a believer in Christ Jesus, do you know the forgiveness of your sins? Have you rested in the absolution of them by his grace? His grace that was displayed in nothing less than his own blood sprinkled over us at the cross. Friends, we are called to this hope that though we ourselves are likened to children before God, our Father, one day we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. And so as we continue on in this life, may we become all the more who we already are, little children loved by the Father, those who have already been purified by the very blood of Christ and yet long for that final day of glory when we will be free to sin no more. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we found in 1 John 3 a very simple message of forgiveness of sin. We thank you, God, that it's in these kinds of passages where we are reminded of the, the basic things of our faith that we often can overlook them and we often can uh, take them as being rote or tried and not see them in all their beauty. And so, Father, I thank you that you've given us this time to um, really focus on the forgiveness of sins, the life that we have in Christ through the actual preached word that is right here for us this very day. God, we thank you that you continue to speak to us through your word, that as we read of it, we read of Christ. So we ask, Father, that as we um, just continue in this time of, of worship, as we now enter into uh, this time of communion with you, that you would remind us of your goodness and your grace toward us in Christ. And so we thank you, Father. We thank you that we are called your children and that we have that bold access before your throne because of Jesus. And so we pray all this in his name. Amen.